Standard Issue for all women. Hello there, excellent humans. Welcome to episode eight of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and I'm just back from my little brother's wedding, where I was best woman. Ours all round. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I once cried on an episode of Think It, Do It. And I'm Jen Offord, and one of the two times I've been to the O2 Arena was to see Simply Red, but I didn't pay for the tickets. Later on, Lucy Nicholl shares her tips on how to deal with anxiety, and Lou Conran celebrates 70 years of the Edinburgh Festival, tells us about her show. Andrea Huber addresses anti-Semitism in the media, and Taylor Glenn talks us through the pros and cons of sharenting. And I'm chatting about women's football and money. Plus, I do Disney's Pinocchio. But first, the Mooch, North Korea, Neighbours and Tory Glastonbury. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we stare directly into the lens of the news with the steely resolve of David Cameron photobombing a Labour MP at a music festival, but with the irreverence of a woman in a Corbyn jacket hugging David Cameron at a music festival. This week, America found itself wondering, again, why, if it had to go through a looking glass, it chose to go through Donald Trump's. The total ship lizard that was Anthony Scaramucci's tenure as White House comms director didn't last long enough for me to have written a joke that was aired while he was still in post. That's if writing jokes is a thing anymore. There's no better example of the death of satire than comedian Ike Barinholtz tweeting that Scaramucci looked like an extra from The Wolf of Wall Street who'd been sacked for trying to make friends with Leo, and just days later, it turning out to be more or less true. Personally, I thought he looked like an escaped host from Westworld's Goodfellas wannabe land, and I say that with the foreknowledge that history may well prove me correct. The guy blew a kiss at the end of a press conference. Anything could happen. We didn't even find out if Scaramucci could do the Fandango. Indeed. The ignoble reign of the mooch had all of the class and life expectancy of those dickbags who get voted out of reality TV shows in the first week. The ten days began with the resignation of Sean Spicer and claimed another scalp, Chief of Staff Prince Rebus, or whatever his fucking name is, a call to the New Yorker to talk about what paranoid twats all his colleagues were, except Steve Bannon, who just tries to suck his own cock, apparently, turned out to be a mistake when the magazine only went and ran it. Then the Mooch's heavily pregnant wife filed for divorce, reportedly because he was obsessed with Trump, who then sacked him, leaving the rest of us with a sensation we'd just got off a roller coaster through a former waxwork museum now being used as a sewage plant. Our monkey overlords cannot arrive soon enough. Neighbours. A former Downing Street advisor has urged Britons to get to know their neighbours better after a survey found that 60% of people do not know their neighbours well or indeed at all. Which will seem like a low figure to any Londoners who didn't immediately switch off as soon as they heard neighbour. Max Chambers, incongruously named charity The Challenge, wants government to create an official National Good Neighbours Day next year presumably to prepare us for the wastelands of Brexit, after which we're all fucking stuck with one another. Chambers says the rise of social media platforms such as Facebook has somewhat ironically made us antisocial, living with our friends in a virtual bubble. I haven't known half my Facebook friends since 1999 and I certainly don't want to strike up a friendship with the man downstairs who takes a frankly uncomfortable level of interest in my bins. Is that a euphemism? No. Good. I'm fairly confident my neighbour stole a pair of knickers from my washing line and a cardigan, presumably to stay cosy while he filches people's pants. Oh, and he once built a wicker man in my front garden. That's not a euphemism either. I do not wish to celebrate my neighbour. Max Chambers and his plan can jog on. 
Meanwhile, the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, made headlines for something other than having a good old joke about rape when he laid into North Korea's overlord, Donald sorry, Kim Jong-un. 72-year-old Duterte, who once called Barack Obama a son of a whore, gave his views on the man-child with a nuclear mm. arsenal. Donald, sorry, I've done it again. He called the North Korean a fool and a son of a bitch, going as far to mock his appearance. Honestly, can you imagine it? An elected world leader mocking another world leader for the state of his face when he could be mocking him for the state of that fucking haircut. In a classic case of what's not great for the goose is also not so good for the gander, it turns out the rise in the number of women watching porn tallies with a rise in the number of women disappointed by real-life sexual encounters. Or as my mum would say, rumpy-pumpy. Man, I wish she wouldn't. As more women use the internet to look at something other than funny cat videos, it seems we've started expecting bigger and, well, bigger things. And by things I mean cocks, and the time-lapse between rock star and flop star. Caitlin Goldsmith, who led the Canadian study of more than a 1,000 adults, said, The often narrow representations of sexual performance and physical attractiveness in pornography may be linked to sexual concerns and sexual expectations among young men and women e.g. body and performance-related sexual distractions, negative genital self-image, expectations of one's partner, etc. Um, no shit, Sherlock. Norway has responded by announcing plans to attempt to stop young people learning about sex through porn by getting real-life couples to have sex on air. Clearly, absolutely no lessons have been learned from Channel 4's terrible sex box. Prince Philip, the Queen's other half, the Duke of Edinburgh, the liability meister general, has retired. In the last 65 years, he's very much become the grandfather of the nation in that he turns up, says some really inappropriate things and goes home. The 96-year-old has carried out 22,220 solo engagements, given 5,496 speeches and written 14 books, including one on competitive carriage driving, which has saved me the effort of writing a joke for the end of that sentence. The Daily Telegraph got so overexcited by its final outing, it briefly reported his death at the age of XX. The paper promised to review its publishing processes as a matter of urgency, which I can't help but think was what got it into this situation in the first place. The Daily Mail marks the occasion with a wistful headline. Farewell, sir. They don't make them like you these days. Harking back to a different time, perhaps for the Mail, a better time, when racists could be racists without scorn or judgment. Talking of scorn and judgment... Sad news as it's confirmed that a pneumonia diagnosis is forcing Jeremy Clarkson to take an indefinite leave from work. Oh, I said sad, didn't I? I'm not sure I meant to say sad. What's the opposite of sad? The former Top Gear presenter and consistent bellend made the announcement on his Drive Tribe app and, of course, squeezed in a humble brag. It's really, really annoying because I've never had one day off work since I started in 1978. Crikey, who's going to sort out the right on liberal bedwetters who think women are equal now? Jez is out of action. Oh, wait, there are loads of takers. Whether James May and the hamster will be able to wipe their own asses, however, remains to be seen. Meanwhile, inspired by the success of People's Princess Jeremy Corbyn's appearance at Glastonbury, Conservative MP George Freeman was keen to jump on Comrade Jezza's youthful bandwagon with a festival for Tories. The Conservative Ideas Festival, planned to take place in September, is a one-day event so there'll be loads of time for revelry once the idea of rah, well done Tarquin, as you were, has been mooted. I'm looking forward to leaked photos of various grassroots Tories being held upside down while they do poppers from a bong or sip a glass of nicely chilled Chardonnay. No news on who might headline the Tory Glastonbury, although I'd like to see a tribute band of early 21st century pff, bands 
Mostly because I've always thought David Cameron looked like a lost member of Keane. He certainly looks like a member. I think we can all agree on that. And finally, the original People's Princess, Diana, Princess of Wales, decided to contact the Daily Express via the medium of a medium. Conveniently for them, she reportedly believes that Prince William's wife is perfect, Prince Harry's girlfriend isn't, and Brexit will be the best thing that's ever happened to us. The country eagerly awaits her next message from the afterlife, which I expect to be either that the BBC is a communist plot or that only lesbians dislike page three, depending on whether it's in the mail or the sun. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we stand up straight, push out our chests and work that feminine charm. That is a direct quote from an article The Sun ran this week, cheerily informing us that boobs are back. Which is great news for people who like boobs, peddlers of the images of boobs and very small children. And look, even though in theory they're supposed to be massive, you can get in on the action regardless of your size. According to the shit rag that is the sun, the trend was signalled at the UK premiere of Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, where star Rihanna, and I quote, risked bursting out of her voluminous red dress. An odd sentence, whichever way you look at it. Underneath, we presume, a less voluminous tuxedo, co-star Cara Delevingne apparently went braless, providing, and I quote, a perfect illustration of the contrasting camps. Yay, equality! Objectification for all! Hello, I'm Taylor Glenn, and I'm here to talk about Charentine. What is Charentine? Well, it is the term du jour for parents sharing photos of their kids online. And yes, that means you, mum with the custom hashtag, wins my next Prosecco. I think I'm talking about myself. Charentine to me, I, I don't like the phrase Charentine. It just sounds unfortunately similar to sharding, except possibly more disgusting. But terminology aside, what's the big deal with Charentine? Well, to Charent or not to Charent was the recent question asked by Ofcom, the UK's communications watchdog. Although in my head, I like to think of Ofcom as a watch cat. Why is it always got to be a dog? You know, sexists, that's why. Anyway, according to the BBC, the findings of this Ofcom report suggest that Charentine divides the nation. Wow. I guess Brexit was getting a little stale as the chief divisive issue, so they went pretty bold on that headline. And in fairness, a significant 56% of parents who were asked say that they would not post images of their children, making it a real Marmite issue. I know that that means it's a divisive issue, but when you say Marmite, I just think of Marmite and then I think of sharding again and we've come full circle. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Seriously, we do need to ask ourselves some questions. Are we raising a generation of kids whose rights are being violated every time we tweet or Facebook or Jellygram a photo of them? And yes, I made up Jellygram, but keep an eye out because I think it's going to take off as the next social media platform, mark my word. There is a real issue of consent when you're talking about uploading photos online. Of course there is. And according to this Ofcom report, a whopping 70% of us don't think it's okay to share images of others without their permission. Fair enough, right? Although I doubt 
that the thousands of photos of newborns I see on my Facebook feed were posted with consent. If they were, wow, talk about a new way to baby brag. Can you imagine? My baby is so advanced she gives consent to post photos. See, she blinks twice when I ask her if it's yes and blinks once if it's no. What are we supposed to do? Do we ban the sharing of baby photos online? Sounds a little extreme, right? Maybe when it comes to internet sharing, common sense should rule. Is common sense still a thing? Hang on, I'll just check out my current president's tweets. No, no longer a thing. Uh, I have to fess up. I'm a frequent written sharenter. If my kid does something ridiculous, that shit is going right up on Twitter. I'm sorry. But by the same token, I'm wary of sharing photos of her on there. Is it because I'm thinking deeply about her intrinsic rights and the digital footprint that I'm leaving behind? No. Not really. It's just, have you met the internet? It's no place for kids. But then again, within the confines of our little social media groups, is sharing photos of your children really that different from making everybody watch a slideshow of your holiday photos like my uncle did in the 80s? I don't know. And I can't help but think, here we are, the same generation of parents who are afraid to let our kids play outside unattended. We're afraid to let them use scissors till they're 25. We are the helicopter parenting generation. Maybe sharenting is our paradoxical safe space. It's where we get our sense of community now that parenting has become such an anxious and individualistic pursuit. I'll admit, when I post about my kid... I feel connection. I feel acceptance that we might be more separated than we used to be, but we're still all in this together. I guess what I'm saying is, it takes a village to like a photo of a child, guys. It really does. Sure, we absolutely need to look at privacy issues, online safety, and the idea that maybe sharing the most humiliating photo you can find of your kid isn't the smartest way to parent. And there's always going to be those annoying over-sharenters. There always have been, though. It's just they used to accost you in person. At least now you can just swipe right, so to speak. I mean, I, I don't recommend sharenting on Tinder. You gotta draw the line somewhere. Thanks. I've been Taylor Glenn. I'm Andrea Hubert, a comedian and journalist. Before his column went viral last week, I hadn't actually heard the name Kevin Myers. It's a piece of writing that managed to be impressively misogynistic and classically misleadingly anti-Semitic at the same time. Since then, I've learned a bit about him, mostly because people keep asking me as their only Jewish friend what my thoughts are. And the simple answer is, as both a Jew and a woman, it's difficult to know which part to be offended by more. There is so much to loathe in his writing and his opinions, it's a little overwhelming to know where to start. Kevin Myers is a writer who in 2008 wrote an article denying the Holocaust. In the published piece, which was only very recently removed, he said, There was no Holocaust, and six million Jews did not get murdered by the Third Reich. And I guess it might be surprising to learn that this isn't actually that shocking to me. People who aren't Jewish often think that anti-Semitism isn't a thing anymore. To them, I'd say... Well, I've had someone Heil Hitler me in the street, and I've had it done more than once. 
I'd argue that all you need to do is to go on any comment section of any YouTube video or article that more often than not isn't even about Jews and realise that anti-Semitism is alive and well. It's just that you usually have to wade through a lot of Islamophobia to find it. It's there, but it's hidden. These days, people are really keen to tell you how they feel about Muslims, but at least in my lifetime, at least in this country, people just don't feel as comfortable slamming Jews openly. So there is a little part of me that wants to shake Gavin Myers by the hand and say, well done, you're a big, brave boy for saying what all your little friends are thinking. Not that he would shake my hand, mind you, I'm a woman, and I've not earned the equal wage yet, so he'd probably force me into a horrific double kiss and call me frigid if I flinched. I keep hearing... Is this anti-Semitic in regard to this article? And I wasn't 100% sure at first. It seems like by singling out Jewish women as making more than their counterparts, he's actually being positive. Or it could seem like that. He's saying Jews are great negotiators. He's also since apologised and called himself a great admirer of Jews. And surely we can't be angry at all of that. The truth is his column didn't really make me angry as a Jew. How can you get angry at a man who's a Holocaust denier? How can you get angry at a man who, in 2017, still wants to connect Jews with money? It's like getting angry at a child who closes his eyes in a game of hide-and-seek and hopes that nobody sees him. I'm not saying it's not distasteful. Of course it is. Jews might well be great at business. They might well be great at negotiation. But lumping people in as all having the same traits is a very dangerous game because no matter how complimentary the comments seem... All roads still lead to Jews control the media, which, by the way, we really, really don't, because if we did, I'd be much more successful than I am. Kevin Myers has apologised for his stereotypical nonsense, but kind of in the vein of some of my best friends are Jews. He absolutely hasn't apologised for his comments about women and how they have to earn the equal wage, because I think that would be too much to ask. So I guess if I ask myself who I'm angry with... My answer may be jaded, but certainly truthful, is I'm not actually angry at all. I mean, I think it's disgusting, but I think it's unsurprising that an older man thinks this way about women. I think it's grotesque, but again, unsurprising that an older white man makes generalisations about groups of minorities. I think it's genuinely embarrassing that a Holocaust denier doesn't keep his stupid opinion confined to his inner circle for fear of ridicule. But mostly what I think is this whole business is just another desperate little attempt by a news outlet to stay relevant and a sad indictment of the decline of print media that they'll print bile like this just to get a reaction. Opinion pieces are absolutely invaluable and I'm not averse to discussion when it's intelligent, but this isn't that. This reeks of clickbait and if broadsheets like the Sunday Times are cynical enough to print them anyway, then just let them. Nobody wants to pay through their firewalls so they must really need those clicks. Question. I'm not answering that. Hello, I am Sarah Millican and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. I am recording this at home and even though it's properly lunchtime, I still have my nightie on. So if you hear any noises, it'll just be the clacking of my boobs because they are free and having a lovely time. Now, the question this week is from Twitter, uh, and I'm going to answer Dave Murray's question. Thank you very much for your question, Dave. Uh, The question is, what's the first Christmas film you watch each year? Now, I think, I think what you mean is like in December or maybe late November, uh, if you're doing it secretively. Um, But I 
I watch Christmas films quite a lot and I, I think the earliest has been March. So I watched um, A Muppet's Christmas Carol in March. I'm quite new to A Muppet's Christmas Carol, but God, I hammered it last year. <laughs> um, and it is one of my go-to films. You know, when you're all sort of either flat or tired or just have had a, a, a day that you think, oh, I need a reward. What's my reward? And the reward, turns out, is Michael Caine singing to some felt. Uh, so I regularly watch A Muppet's Christmas Carol. So I think March is the earliest. Another film that I heavily rely on is San Andreas. I have no idea why. Uh, it's a, a film about an earthquake with The Rock. Uh, and um, the the best bit in it, I think the best bit in it, not it's not a spoiler at all, the best bit in it is when um, he's covered in petrol, so he needs to go into a shop to quickly change uh, because because obviously you'll just catch fire because that's what happens. Uh, and he goes in and he just grabs a T-shirt off any of any rack and puts it on. And you're like, I can't do that. How can the rock do that? His back is the size of a small planet. This is ridiculous. Um, I mean, the whole film is ridiculous, but it's also awesome. So I think if you wanted to watch a double bill of A Muppet's Christmas Carol and San Andreas, not only would you feel very Sarah Millican, you would also have a rollicking good time. Thanks so much for your question, Dave. Bye-bye. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at Standard Issue UK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. Standard issue for all women. My name's Lucy Nicholl and I'm going to be sharing with you my guide to managing anxiety. You might remember my mental health series from the online Standard Issue mag. And if you do remember it, you'll know that I am a bit of an expert in anxiety, sadly. When I say anxiety, I'm not just talking about a natural reaction, like the dread you might feel before a big presentation. You know, that's perfectly normal. Responding to some of life's big events and being kind of wound up about it is perfectly normal. What I'm talking about is more more like having a panic attack in the middle of a big presentation because it's just randomly popped into your head that you might have locked your cat in the washing machine and then you just get all these images spinning around your head of your beloved moggy stuck on turbo spin. And then you start getting the palpitations and then for me my arms can go like all tingly and prickly and then I get this rush of heat goes over me and then my throat gets really tight and then I think I'm going to wet myself or pass out. And and I suppose the, the, the big thing is this isn't a one-off. This this can happen anytime. Even it's happened to me. I've woken up at 3am, had a panic attack and been absolutely convinced that I was dying. So that's what I'm talking about. That's what anxiety means to me. And that, I think, is when you could do with a little bit of help. So first of all, disclaimer, um, I'm not a professional. I have lived experience of anxiety. Different things work for different people, but I'm just going to share what has worked for me. If they work for some of you too, then that's great. Part one, this is what not to do when you live with anxiety. There's three points to this. And number one is do not drink a shitload of caffeine. It sounds really obvious, but I am a serious Diet Coke addict. I find this really hard. I have been advised to cut out the caffeine by so many people over the years. But I actually, I go to bed dreaming about my morning Diet Coke. And yes, I, I, I have one before nine o'clock every single day. But aside from rotting my insides and turning my teeth the colour of Donald Trump's skin caffeine is really it's anxiety's best friend it's not it's not your best friend it's never going to be your best friend if anything it'll fuel your panic attacks you don't have to cut it out completely but definitely cut back and don't have it before bed restless legs there's a whole other story number two 
Do not search relentlessly for bad news on Google. Hmm. If there's one thing more addictive than Diet Coke, for me, it's Google. And I think for a lot of people who have anxiety, I've Googled all sorts. Why does my thumb twitch? Can you really get stigmata? Have I got jaw cancer? And loads more. I've Googled the shit out of them over the years. And of course you do that and you, you regularly come to the most horrifying conclusions, you know, that your 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 body's fighting motor neurone disease or you, you're possessed by a demon or the side of your head's going to explode from a cancerous lump that two doctors and one dentist has already told you doesn't exist in the first place. So it's not good for you. If you do feel you have to do it, go online for health information, then go to the NHS do not go to the forums because basically they'll just be full of loads more people like you and you'll just wind each other up and it's not good. Number three, avoid getting totally ridiculously humdingingly wasted on booze. I'll be honest, it doesn't take much for me these days. The occasional drink is fine for most people, but if you're prone to anxiety, you should totally take it easy because for you, the Sunday morning beer fear can last a week Uh, you know, waking up in the morning and having that kind of, oh my God, did I really say that in the kebab shop in front of three people that I'm never even going to see again, but my life is over. Well, that multiplied by like 10 and lasting five times as long is kind of what happens when you have anxiety coupled with a raging hangover. Part two, things you should do. I'm not, I'm absolutely not going to give you some kind of hippy-dippy guide to finding yourself and cleansing your soul and repeating self-affirmations and all of that stuff. Yoga might work for you, self-affirmations might work for you, but I guess my point is they might be on trend, they might be a thing right now, you know, like colouring books are like really popular and all of that, but it doesn't mean that they're the, you know, that's the only way to do it. It's not the only way to chill the fuck out basically do whatever works for you. So for me, you know, yoga's all well and good, but I've got loads and loads of restless, anxious energy. So to get that out, I like pounding the pavements in my pink Tesco trainers, um, which I wouldn't advise buying £10 trainers, investing good ones. Anyway, and listening to smack my bitch up on the old iPod, that works for me. I feel brilliant after that. Or, you know, I might I might wander into my backyard and have a conversation with Lucy, Emily and Nicola. They're my three little chickens. Not named after me, Lucy, that's my sister-in-law. And uh, while we're on the subject, Emily is after Emily Thornbury, who I think is pretty kick-ass. And Nicola is after one of my wonderful colleagues from work. But I digress. Sorry. Yeah, gardening as well. Gardening for me is 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 my like chill out mindfulness time. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I'm always in the garden centre. I love it. So basically, mindfulness and physical activity can be whatever you want them to be. You know, whether it's watching a comedy gig or hiking up a hill or stroking your pussy. Um, make of that what you will. Part three: get professional help. You know, if anxiety is intruding on your life, first port of call has to be your GP. And for some people, especially like me, you might not even know why you're seeing the doctor. You might think, like I did, I thought I was going because my throat was closing up. I was, I had some kind of spontaneously constricting throat disease. I didn't know I was going about a mental health issue. But the doctor didn't examine my throat. He actually asked me if I wanted to see a counsellor. At which point, I just broke down in tears. And I think that was a, the absolute sheer relief. So I had CBT, that's that's cognitive behavioural therapy, and that's really great. Basically what it does is it arms you with this whole bunch of tips and tricks and tools to help manage your 
anxiety symptoms and kind of rationalize what's going through your brain so that's really good and then there's this other kind of therapy too i suppose this is what you might see as the stereotypical kind of lying on a couch therapy although i've never lied on a couch this is the reflective delving into your history and finding you in a child kind of therapy it might make some of you want to laugh or cringe or vomit but actually even though it wasn't something i was particularly excited about I think it's probably one of the most powerful forms of therapy that I've had. Basically, I'm looking at why I've got low self-esteem. I've got really low self-esteem. And I never thought the two could be linked. I never thought that could be fueling my anxiety. And apparently I need liberating. So it's quite good fun, actually. I'm in the middle of it right now. It's making me believe that things I always thought were impossible are more than possible for me. Like recording a podcast, for example. So that's really good. I will report back on it. The other kind of professional help is the psychiatric kind, drugs basically. Quite a controversial subject, I'm not advocating it for everyone, they shouldn't be doled out like sweeties, but for me antidepressants really work. And I know you're probably thinking, well you've got anxiety, not depression, but they they are prescribed for anxiety as well as depression. And they've curbed my anger, because that, that for me was a really troubling symptom of anxiety. They've basically stopped me blowing up like Vesuvius every time someone forgot to put the bins out, which, you know, in our house, that's everyone's job. So they've kind of given me the breathing space and the time to kind of step back and look at where I am and to and to practice the other longer term talking therapy stuff. So I know there's this whole psychiatry versus psychology war you know I see it on Twitter all the time but um actually I think it's okay to use both so I think if the doctor prescribes drugs and if they do work for you don't feel guilty about it oh but don't expect like some kind of ecstatic high either they don't come imprinted with the Mitsubishi stamp and you'll not go to work and sit in your swivel chair rushing your tits off it just won't happen so nothing to worry about there part four the final part talk basically that's my advice here talk talk to people it's free it's easy talk to your mates your family your workmates twitter facebook whoever you click with whoever you trust basically at the end of the day one in four of us will experience a mental health problem at some point in our lives and anxiety is actually one of the most common forms of mental illness so don't be ashamed about it don't feel that it's something you've got to hide it doesn't make you a wilting wallflower or like a weak and wobbly womble it's highly likely you're already surrounded by people who've got palpitations and who are hyperventilating and catastrophizing it's just that they're hiding it too it's actually really nice to open up and find you're not on your own so yeah i hate to tell you this but it's not anxiety that makes you unique and you will find a lot of support out there So I hope that this has helped a little bit. As I say, I'm not a professional, but that's my experience. And I do advise if you feel that it's getting in the way of life, go see your GP. And if you do have to go online, avoid those forums. But you could always try the NHS or mind.org.uk. And I'm sure you'll get tons more great advice. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Lou Conran here, uh, recording this from my bedroom on Parkside Street, Edinburgh, part of the Edinburgh Festival, which, incidentally, uh, is the 70th anniversary of the Edinburgh Festival this year. Ooh, sighting. I was thinking the other day, um, I was thinking, what waffle am I going to waffle on in your ears? And I was thinking about how... um, how excited I was the very first time I came to the Edinburgh Festival. 
and that was uh, back in 1991. What? 1991? You don't look old enough. I know, thank you. I was in a show called Priceless, and it really fucking was. Oh, it was awful. It was uh, set inside the human brain, and we were all playing messengers, delivering messages around the brain to various parts of the body. I mean, are you still are you still listening? Are you still there? Uh, and on top of all of that, it was a movement mime piece. <laughs> Shut up! Oh whoa! It it was awful. Um, and I remember our tutor Pete coming home uh, back to the accommodation one day and he had a copy of the Scotsman newspaper under his arm and he was furiously fingering the pages open to read this review that he couldn't wait to read from the from the Scotsman and he opened opened the page and he saw the review and his little face dropped his skin went grey and that man, well, he was never the same again Two stars from the Scotsman basically said it was shit. I mean, we knew that. We knew that. He'd pinned so much hope on it. Oh, bless him. And I remember that. I remember thinking at the time, oh, gosh. People take these reviews so seriously, don't they? And actually, this year, I started thinking, well, I don't think it really matters if you get a bad review, does it? Because this year, I'm doing a show about my experiences uh, losing my baby last year. <laughs> What's that, Lou? Is it a comedy? Yes. Yes, it is. It's actually quite funny. And do you know, I'm going to make a bold statement here. I'm actually really proud of my show. And I've never been able to say that before because sometimes when I've come here, oh my goodness, I've just totted out at a drivel, mostly out of panic, really. Like, oh no, I've booked a room, I better do something. And then, you know, life gets in the way and then you forget to write your show. But this year, I've really worked hard on it and I'm really proud. And I'm not the sort of person that really likes the sort of shows that are like, oh no, oh God, woe is me, my life is shit. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not really into those sort of shows and um, I've inadvertently um, potentially written a show that could be seen like that but I'm doing it for a purpose really which is to kind of well reduce the taboo of baby loss get people talking about it because nobody really does really and I understand because uh, it's upsetting and obviously because it's happened to me but I'm trying to make it normal. I'm trying to make it normal. Uh, and also, if I'm really honest, I'm, I'm actually trying to raise £50,000 for a, a wonderful charity called Saying Goodbye, who um, they they help people that have been affected by baby loss or are bereaved or to do with the families, the families have experienced it, or is that, you know, anybody that's been affected by the loss of a child, they're a brilliant charity and they just don't get that much funding. And, and one day I'd, I'd sort of been on the red wine and I, um, I had uh, contacted them to offer to do a gig for them to try and, I don't know, help raise a little bit of money for them along the way. Didn't really think that well, I didn't really think that they'd sort of say yes or anything. And then 15 minutes later, I'd agreed to raise £50,000. Ah! Ooh, 
great. So that's kind of why I'm here, really, doing my show. And also, between you and me, uh, the venue gave me the room by accident because they thought I was someone else. Lou Sanders. True story. But it's a privilege, actually, to do my show on the 70th anniversary of The Fringe. I didn't realise that I'd be, you know, back doing a show in the same venue that I started off doing my first show. Um, And I couldn't be more proud of that. Walking in the doors of the Mash House, uh, 1.20pm, the the show starts every day except the 14th. Walking through those doors, uh, I think of 16-year-old me and I think... (laughs) Uh, I think of 16-year-old me looking up at the doors and looking out over Edinburgh and I think of me with all my hopes and dreams and my ambitions and all I ever wanted to do was be a performer. And here I am at the age of 43 being a performer, doing my own show in the same venue where I did my very first show and uh, it makes me feel a little bit humbled really. So, um, So please come along, come and have a watch. Uh, let's just hope let's just hope I don't get any shit reviews like the year I did a show oh what was it U2000 that's right did a show based on Chaucer got voted worst show on the fringe by the observer so uh, well that's already happened isn't it and and also the grimmest things in my life have already happened last year so um, things can only get better from now on can't they so come along come and have a watch come and have a listen come and say hello I'd love that. Thanks. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, our weekly rummage around the tombola of women's sport. So, in the last week, we dared to dream as we watched the women's Euros play out until we remembered we were English. We'd already remembered we were Scottish because they'd already left by this point, but anyway. After the most hopeful of starts, it was all hello darkness, my old friend, as England were eventually knocked out in the semi-finals by the Netherlands, the host nation who also eventually went on to win. Let's look at the positives, though. A staggering four million viewers tuned in to watch that semi-final. According to an article by The Guardian, the average Premier League match apparently attracts a viewing audience of around one million people cue lots of chat about equal pay for women's footballers. Now, I'm a big fan of equal pay for equal jobs, but, and this might not be the most popular of views, those jobs aren't really equal. Okay, right, we're all kicking a football around, right? So in in essence, it is an equal job. But the point is that you can't compare domestic league football with international football. The Paul Pogba's of the world are being paid by their clubs, not by their countries, or rather the football associations of their countries. Audiences for the top flight women's league in the UK come in at about 1,200 on average. Old Trafford, which sells out pretty much every match, has a capacity of around 70,000. Now, don't get me wrong, I want to see women's football attract audiences that are big enough to bring in the kind of revenue that would justify more comparable wages, But the good thing here is that those kind of viewing figures show that there is a market for women's football. Also, mate, let's not fuck around. The grass, or turf if you prefer, is always greener. Now, this week you may have heard of a lad called Neymar. Brazilian, about yay high, with a frankly creepy tattoo of his sister's face on his arm. 
I digress. Neymar broke the record transfer fee this week after Paris Saint-Germain, a French club, which as far as I can tell is basically owned by Qatar, paid Barcelona his buyout clause of 222 million euros. That is literally double the previous record fee which was set last year by the transfer of aforementioned Paul Pogba. Look guys, these pricks get paid too much already and it is literally ruining football. Is that really what we want? Is the justification that because they earn too much everyone else must earn too much as well? Why don't we focus our attention on creating the conditions in which women's football can actually grow by bitch-slapping the likes of journalist John, who's not really sport though, is it? Gaunt, who came out from under his bridge this week to, uh, to let the world know that. John, mate, if darts is a sport... Meanwhile, kicking off today, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, is the Women's Rugby World Cup. Wales are playing New Zealand. England start their campaign against Spain and Ireland, the host nation, take on Australia. So we'll be wishing them all the best. And you can watch the coverage on ITV and let's hope for some of the same kinds of record viewing figures and that those might inspire growth which is currently being threatened in that particular sport by the dwindling professional contracts that have recently been announced. Also this week, you might have heard of uh, a young man called Usain Bolt who kind of surprised the world by not winning. He was in his basically, I gather, retirement race at the World Championships in London this week. Obviously, we all know Usain Bolt has won a lot of gold medals and is generally considered, you know, the goat. And by goat, I mean greatest of all time, not like a farm animal. And Usain was beaten, in fact, to the uh, gold medal by Justin Gatlin, previously found to be a drugs cheat. But anyway, probably the less said about that, the better. Also, at the same World Championships, Katarina Johnson-Thompson did not pick up a medal, which is a huge disappointment to all of us, but we do still love her and, uh, you know, we hope for more in the future. Anyway... Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with more tales of women's sportsings. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I did Pinocchio. Sorry, what? This week I did Pinocchio. Pinocchio? Pinocchio. 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 Very much Pinocchio, mate. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I can I can speak Italian. Two C's and an H is Pinocchio. Pinocchio. I was going to say wasn't Italian, but I suppose his dude was called Geppetto, right? It Which is Italian. does sound fairly it is Italian. Italian. How do you say scone? Scone. Yeah, because that's the correct way to say scone. Finally, anyway, after years of working together, we're all in agreement. It won't happen again. Okay, so Pinocchio. <laughs> Pinocchio. 1940. It's Disney's second film. It's generally considered to be his best film. It has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is actually pretty rare. Oh, my God. For any film. What um, did if, he do? Sorry? What did he do to deserve that? It was well, we'll, generally we'll excellent. Sorry, yeah, go um, on. So it starts off with When You Wish Upon a Star, which is essentially the Disney theme tune. So I was expecting... You know, good things. It was apparently a, a flop on its first release, and it didn't make its money back till its second release in 1945. It was re-released on several occasions, including 1978, which I think is when I would have seen it, which would have made me about four or five. I do remember really liking it. Have you seen it? 
I I I have seen it, but I don't. I wouldn't have a fucking clue when that happened. I would have been very young, I think. I've definitely seen it, but again, would have been really little and haven't. It's not been one that I've revisited. No, but I think because the story of Pinocchio is so well, Pinocchio is so well known anyway. You kind of, but in my head, he's the Disney Pinocchio, definitely. It's I don't know. I saw a um, I saw like a pantomime of it once in the uh, Electric Palace Cinema. In fact, where did you ever go anywhere else? No, because I grew up in semi-rural Essex okay. and there was literally one place to go other than Woolworths. Um, so, yeah, I remember seeing it then and there's a bit where all the kids go up on stage and there's like a dude dressed as a fox and it was fucking creepy, man. I didn't like it, it at is, all. It is, yeah, there's uh, a we, fox we in it. To, uh, there were lots of things I forgot. I forgot about the donkeys, but... Oh, the fucking donkeys! There you go. So the plot, if you're not familiar, is Jiminy Cricket. To be clear, that's Jiminy Cricket, not Jimmy Cricket. Doesn't he still have Wellingtons on that say left or right, though? Oh, no, that is Jimmy Cricket. That is Jimmy Cricket. He is a journeyman or a journey cricket. Um, I don't know. The most important thing to say is whatever you call him, he is definitely not a fucking cricket. No, he's like a sort of flea, tadpole kind of he's thing, isn't he? He's like a grasshopper, isn't he? No, he has no, no things. No things. Isn't he just like a he little? Has none of the 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 sort of whatever ephemera the bits Antennae? that come out the top of the head. All Hannah, the Hannah is doing some brilliant hand signals. He has that none you of can't that. See. He's like um, a conscience, though, isn't he? He is. We'll get to that. Well, he's Sorry. not at first, right? He stumbles upon the home of an Italian woodcarver, Geppetto, who is finishing. Oh, as I say it, Geppetto, <laughs> who is finishing work on a puppet which he calls Pinocchio. Pinocchio. Um, to, to be clear, this is obviously a very Americanized version of Italy because Geppetto goes to bed at 9 p.m., which is actually the time that most Italians start thinking about having their dinner or the time that Silvio Berlusconi starts goes to his first orgy. <laughs> <laughs> how many orgies can you have in a night? What? What? How many orgies before it's a Bacchanalian fuckfest? They don't call them orgies. There's a special word for the things that... Is it orgies? Isn't it a bunga bunga party? party. That's it. Yeah. That just sounds like there's a lot of fruit juice. That sounds like words you you shouldn't have in a review of Pinocchio. But there you go. Anyway, Pinocchio himself, he's not very Italian either. In the original books, he was drawn as something that looks more like one of the old-fashioned Italian clowns. Um, You know, like um, Pirouette, who have the sort of the cone-shaped hat. You know, like a party hat. Yeah. Um, clown. And here he's wearing lederhosen and a bow tie and a hat with a feather in it, which is more Austrian, I'd say. Or something like Jacob Rees-Mogg wears around the house. <laughs> <laughs> so also living in the house of weird wooden clocks is Figaro, who is a proper stroke stealer of Figaro, a cat. Figaro. And Cleo, who is a fish that appears to fancy the cat. Ah, oh, the fish! Which I don't remember the weird. fish at all. She's a sexy fish, isn't she? She, is. she fancies yeah. the cat. It's really what fish strange. isn't sexy, Jen? Like, no fish is sexy. It like, but she's got like massive eyes and eyelashes, doesn't yeah. she? You didn't get the right fish. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, wait, no, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Sorry, it was me. <laughs> I was wrong. There were no sexy fish. No. <laughs> so anyway, Geppetto wishes upon a star that Pinocchio will become a real boy. Aww. Is Geppetto really lonely? And hey, presto, a fairy turns up. Presumably because rather than him being some basement-dwelling Reddit troll wishing his Japanese love pillow comes to life, he's a harmless pensioner. The perfect Disney age for rearing children. 
If um, ever I get worried that at 40 I'm not going to have kids, I just yeah. remember that my make life is very much like a Disney movie. Make a puppet. Or I could make fine. a puppet. Now, I do sometimes make a puppet. I know you're, wonder- you're going to ask me what voice the fairy speaks in. Hannah, what voice does the okay. fairy speak so, in? So the fairy speaks in one of those voices, like she's just finished a warm laugh while she's picnicking with a suitor who drives a vintage Rolls. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you know what a warm laugh is. Do your warmest laugh, Hannah. No, oh, it's, it's one of those terribly, oh, darling, that was hilarious voices. <laughs> just got a little bit of magic spare. <laughs> there. So she gives Pinocchio the gift of life and she tells him that he can actually become a real boy if, rather than like a flammable item, if he proves himself <laughs> to be brave, truthful and unselfish. Because that's what all real boys are. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Saw that on Twitter. Saw that on Tinder. <laughs> Jiminy gets appointed his conscience. Oh, he gets appointed. Yeah, he gets appointed the conscience and he gets a new suit and then we're off. So Geppetto wakes up and get this, he doesn't notice that Pinocchio is actually alive. And they pull this trick three times in the film. You know, that, oh, I didn't really notice this was... And so much so they pull this that I couldn't shake the idea that in the live action version he would be played by David Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yes, there is a live action version coming. It's going to be directed by Sam Mendes. Sam yeah. Mendes. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Which might make you want to see it more, or if you're anything like me, might make you want to see somebody cut scenes from the original Pinocchio into the Road to Perdition and then just put it on YouTube. What character is Tom Hanks? Is he Jiminy Cricket? He would be Geppetto. Oh, Geppetto, yeah, father yeah, yeah. of the feckless oh, sorry, son. Obviously. No, yeah. I think he'd be Pinocchio. I think Paul Newman's the father of the feckless no, son. No, 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 no. In in the, the Road to Perdition, <laughs> Tom Hanks' son gets him in a lot of trouble. But in the Road to Perdition, Paul Newman's son gets him in a load of trouble. No, no, definitely. Geppetto is is Tom Hanks. All right. All right. Who's the base basketball? Who plays that? I'm a game on Tom Hanks movies. I think you are, yeah. Oh, okay. And who's going to land the plane? I don't know. <laughs> no one knows. Anyway, Geppetto is so happy with his wooden son that he gets his accordion out which isn't a euphemism. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to laugh at it. It is now. A bit, a bit like when my granddad used to say that he'd been polishing his bugle, which always made us laugh. Honey, you should probably talk to people about I know. that. Uh, so, so the new dad, he inexplicably sends his son to school, because that's what you do on the first day. But he's inter- intercepted by some shysters, a fox, yeah, that can't. A fox yeah. called Honest John and a scabby old cat. Definitely not going to be honest. Yeah. Definitely not going to be honest. Whose, like, like nickname is Honest Anything. They are like the least yeah. honest person. Yeah. yeah. So and a, he's a scabby old cat. They trick him to going to the theatre, and he ends up being kidnapped. He's saved by the fairy and Jiminy, not a cricket, and he vows to go home. But. Oh, Pinocchio. He's tricked again. What a prick. Yeah, but great pronunciation. Yeah, well done. He's tricked again into going to a place called Pleasure Island, which is owned by a horribly sweaty man who's looking for, and I quote, trusting small boys, which is absolutely terrifying as an idea. I think that place actually exists in Clacton. I I think it's in Blackpool. That we have a we I don't live. I, There's I'm, a pleasure beach. I'm sure that there is something like that in Clacton or Southend on Sea. That would explain the donkeys, which we've yet to get to. Well, it well. turns out that this is a place where you can smoke and play games, which sounds like my house. It sounds awesome. Um, but like your but house. hold up, what's actually happening is the little boys are being turned into donkeys. No, I don't know why either. Right, and they're being oh sent... come on, we've all wanted to turn a little boy into a donkey, and they're when being it's sent Wednesday. to work in mines. 
Is it where the dwarves work? Possibly. Okay. So, Pinocchio escapes and he vows to go home. Yeah, we've heard this one before, mate. Now, just can I just stop you here. Consider how much plot this is. We did Cinderella a couple of weeks ago, and can you remember how much plot there was in Cinderella? They were, there was zero. And, they were saving it. And well, seriously, we haven't even got to like the most important thing in Pinocchio yet because uh, we're about to go into the belly of a fucking whale. What about the nose? Oh my what fucking about the, the nose. Wa- this is crazy shit, right? It is. It is. Uh, right, so so Geppetto... Don't do drugs, kids. Yeah. Because Geppetto's got himself and the cat and the goldfish swallowed Sexy by goldfish. the world's oh largest mammal and the plucky little puppet boy, puppet boy and the cricket, who's not a cricket, goes to save him. Oh, what a mistake Have of a maker. Have the nose thing happened yet? Yeah, the nose thing has happened. You've not nose. even mentioned yeah, it. Well, that's, that's because kind of... it's not even the, amongst the, the, the 25 most interesting you, things that happen in Pinocchio. If you say Pinocchio or Pinocchio, if you're you then people will think of the nose. He's yeah. a liar and his nose grows. Yeah, okay. Okay, no? And then no. it gets a little sprout like it's going to turn into a tree. A tree, it does. Yeah. Does, does that, that, that did a real boy happen? or just when he's made of wood? Just when he was made of wood. Well, okay, so there's like a sort of limited time frame yeah. for that. Sadly, so. there's no real test to see if a man is lying. It would be so much yeah. easier, wouldn't it? it would if make, his yeah. nose grew instead Anyway, of... it's, all, it's all touch and go for a bit, but they all escape the whale and they go home and because he's proving himself to be brave and whatever that other shit she wanted is. Um, he's transformed into a real boy. Guess what? Geppetto doesn't notice. Oh, fucking he's very, hell, very old. Wake up. He's and old. And then, and then he's so happy he gets his accordion out. <laughs> the end. <laughs> it's a sticky end. <laughs> oh. So, Dunleavy, did you like it? Well, you know what? I actually really did. You can tell. Like, there's loads of things wrong with it. It's really, really preachy about it, what it considers to be low habits, like smoking, drinking. The theatre. Play games, music hall, you know, basically having any fun at all. So it's espousing some quite Victorian values or middle-class American values, which are basically exactly the same thing. Um, it doesn't have any women in it. Well, it has two it's women. It's got a sexy goldfish. It's, well, three and, if you count the goldfish. And a warm, laughing fairy. It's got, it's got the fairy, and it's got a woman who you briefly see mopping her front step. Good, so good girl. if you're wondering why Geppetto is reduced to carving himself a family out of wood, it's because nobody in this film has a uterus. Um, <laughs> but, in days of old, when knights were bold and women were invented, they drilled some holes in telegraph poles and had to be contented. Ooh. That's lovely. This is a Geppetto poem. Uh, Is it? No. Oh, because I thought that might have been because he's made of wood. So yeah, I know. That's why I was like, going with it. And it's very up. Disney. I'm yeah. quite impressed. We've got the way all the way through this without saying. Oh, I joke, had loads, but, but you go. kept having your hand in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's got the other thing is it's got some really good songs in it, um, which are oh. songs that are actually for children. Um, not all that power ballad shit from Frozen. Um, and when I, it's funny, I don't remember stuff. It actually caused me to have a memory. Um, I know I don't have many anymore, but it. it yeah. I had I had um, an album when I was little, which was songs from Disney, and I don't remember. I can't it. imagine a little Dunley listening I to Disney. I didn't remember it until this happened, and all of the songs are actually really good, and I still remembered all the words. I've got no strings. It's really good. I've got, got no, no strings to hold me. You're yeah. not high pitched enough, but yeah, that's, that works. Uh, high pitched. Give a little whistle. Is that's it. Yeah, um, and hi diddly d is also really good. I like diddly diddly like for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Jen's so, doing the kind so of nightclub good. singers version. Yeah. Sure. So, what score are we giving it? 
Well, I can't in good conscience give five stars to any film that fails the Bechtel test. What about the star you wish upon? Could that be um, an extra star? Maybe. Okay. Unless it's historically accurate, like the thin red line, because there aren't there weren't actually any women talking about whether Eleanor Roosevelt would make a good president at Guadalcanal. But with that in mind, I'm going to give it four. Four out of what? I'm giving it four entomologically incorrect sidekicks out of five. <laughs> Uh, lovely stuff. Join us next week for more Dunleavy Does Disney. That's been us for this week. Join us next week when we'll be talking news, sport and loads of other things. We'll also be at the Edinburgh Festival and joined by comedian Angela Barnes. Plus, Mickey's all about James Bond and I'll be looking at the best performances by women on TV so far this year, of which there has been a literal shitload, although obviously they've not been shit. If you want to see us in Edinburgh, you could walk the streets, paying particular interest to any benches at the top of hills where we might well be lying down, crying, sweating swearing but it might just be easier to come to one of our shows we've got two in conversation events and two stand-up shows details of which can be found on sarah's website which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk if you have a question for sarah you can tweet us using the hashtag smqt or go to our facebook page you should probably follow us on twitter where we are at standard issue uk or like us on facebook so we can tell you about all our other shows that we're running in the coming year our music was composed by Barry Hilton, all rights reserved, and our stings were combined with the help of John Clare, Mary Young and Dave Young. My washing machine has just started peeping, so there's really nothing left to say, except until next week, stay frosty.